This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action, with host Arman Shraki. Each week, Arman will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS Scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's q r v e y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Michael Kriller, uh, the CEO and Chairman of Lease Accelerator here with me. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining me. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Lease Accelerator, please? Sure, Armand, nice to see you and thanks for involving me in this, appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, so I've been an entrepreneur um, really since I got out of grad school in 91. Started my first company, grew it for about seven years, sold it. Started my second company, grew that for three or four years. Um, we were selling to competitive local exchange carriers in the uh, late 90s. And 2001, that kind of blew up. And so <clears throat> I'm on my third company. It's called Lease Accelerator. And both my second and, and company in this one are SaaS companies. So software as a service. And we can talk about what that means as the conversation unfolds here. But um, but we've been able to scale a great SaaS company uh, over the years. And, um, you know, we've got about a third of the Fortune 1000 as our customers and well over a thousand customers overall today. And... Uh, you know, we've got the largest global B2B software investor as our main minority investor in the company. And um, it's, been a, it's been a great experience and a great ride so far. Fantastic. And uh, uh, you told me before that, you know, you have been uh, building these software companies and working with software world since the very beginning, right out of college. I have the same experience as well. So, uh, you know, just getting out of college, especially during the days that, you know, software was not as common as today, right? So it was a totally different uh, days back then. Uh, we are minority. It's still, it's not like if randomly you just walk on the street and just run into, you know, someone. The chance of that guy to be in software business is still is not like over 50%. Uh, there are a number of non-software businesses are still the majority in most parts of the world. But, you know, back then it was even more minority. It was more very unknown. Uh, now people talk about AI. Back then it was just about, you know, what is computer actually? So... Uh, what is uh, when you when you get into this entrepreneurship, you get into this kind of you know I need to start something, a software business, and help others. And of course, you are at the age that you are very optimistic. 
but you may not have all of the experience in the world. Uh, and then now you have a lot of experience because you have worked with a lot of, you know, um, software companies during your experience. You have consulted others. Uh, how do you feel about starting a software business today if you were graduating from you know, university now versus the time that you did? What are the pluses, minuses that you see if people start a SaaS company today versus the time we did some decades ago? Well, I think um, there's just been so many different kinds of changes, um, you know, in the market. You know, SaaS itself has emerged, and um, you know that that is an incredible. The recurring revenue model is just an incredible force of nature, you know, in in business. Um, you know, when you know when I graduated from undergrad, I went into the software business in sales and business development. And, uh, you know, had a lot of fun just learning to do deals, learning to listen to people and listen to kind of what their pain needs are and helping solve their problems. You know, I really, really like that dimension of sales. Um, but I also just wanted to be better at, you know, explaining our value proposition, right? So that's why I went back and got a, a technical graduate degree. So... Um, and it's helped me just a lot to just understand a lot of the trends and forces that, you know, were coming into play. So this, you know, in the early 90s, this was kind of when the web was just emerging, right? And it was a product of the CERN in Switzerland collaborating with University of Illinois. And I was in that community because... I was working with scientific data and scientists and um, we worked with some other products actually um, that were developed for scientists by University of Illinois, you know, Urbana-Champaign Supercomputer Center. Um, so it was kind of fun to watch the web kind of explode and of course we adopted it very quickly, you know, and it's been that original kind of HTML web platform that still is dominant today in most applications. I mean, databases hooked up to it, middleware hooked up to it, new languages emerging. But other than that, there really hasn't been that much innovation behind the scenes, you know, um, except, you know, IP, internet protocol underneath, and the web running on top. And that's still kind of the core, you know, components of SaaS today. So what would I say to somebody today? Well, I can just tell you that kids are just so much smarter today coming out of school. You know, my, I have two, I have three kids in their twenties. And so they not only learn their domain expertise, but they're all learning from each other and, you know, from videos in the internet about how to hack whatever it is they want to do. Right. So you know, we had kind of thinking it took, it was very slow learning on our part because everything was so manual and there was just so much human direct interaction that was required that things just took time, you know? So I never went to business school, so I had to kind of learn it all on my own by doing deals and hiring people and, and making a million mistakes, right? That was my graduate business school experience was just really making yeah. a million mistakes 
and you know fail early fail often is uh is just a great mantra that um without actually knowing it you know earlier in my career i just practiced because there's just no way else to do it right so um so you know what would i say to kids it, i think the tools are so much easier there's so many models out there so many pathways the kind of the core economics of SaaS are so well understood. There's just so much knowledge about, you know, kind of every dimension of it, the technology, the contracting. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we first were getting into SaaS, we had to sell SaaS itself mm-hmm. because people were still really defensive about installed on-prem software. That's right. Great. CIOs and CTOs saw it as a risk, as a threat, right? Yep. And, and is it fair to say, for example, everything has been specialized? So as a result of that, you know, being specialized, everything. So even SaaS itself, infrastructure is separate layer now. When you think about, you know, even software, you know, we are so specialized now compared to maybe as the time goes back. And it continues even moving forward, I would say five years from now, even we will be more specialized than we are today because many of these things that we do today, then there will be some group of people very specialized in that particular thing. And then it's a help of group of people rather than everything being done A to Z by the company itself as it used to be, you know, at the beginning of software. So um, so SaaS is not different from that aspect because we are essentially saying that, you know, let us just focus on building the software, and then the rest of it, infrastructure, everything else can be managed by somebody or by some companies um, to really do that. Would you agree with this, especially uh, this kind of trend that we are in, that everything is getting specialized? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the emergence of AWS and Mm -hmm. Microsoft Azure and Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, you know, um, those didn't exist in the beginning. We, we all had to host it ourselves, right? We we did all the underlying DevOps infrastructure, right? And then built our and deployed our apps on top, right? And so that whole world has um, has evolved so quickly um, that it makes things actually a lot easier. You can just focus, as you said, on you know, where you want to create that unique value. Mm-hmm. And you can leverage just a tremendous other number of tools um, applications, you know, components, you know, as services, you can consume those as SaaS services too, right? So, um, you know, and we, that's what we do today too. I mean, we use, we leverage a lot of other third-party services to kind of give our customers the best experience that they can have. And at, at the heart of software business and SaaS business is the product that you build, and the product that you create, and that product can serve people as a service, as a software, doesn't matter, but there has to be a product that is useful so people can use it. Now, when you wanted to build a product, the product roadmap is the roadmap. You have a roadmap in front of you that you go through this roadmap to build the product, to maintain it, to make it better, and some people may just naturally, organically, you know, deal with that roadmap and say, this is a product roadmap, just by itself it evolves and you leave it to some people and they just take care of it or even you know you have to anyway 
get some feedback or some ideas into the roadmap. But you can look at it very scientifically and say, no, this is the roadmap that can impact the business in the coming year. If I really architect it and scientifically look at this roadmap, it can tell me even the future. It can even you know, tell me what kind of product, what kind of business, what kind of customer satisfaction, and many other aspects of it I may create. So I, I have the opportunity to create a better experience based on a better roadmap. I know that you are one of those people that will look at product load, roadmap in, in a way that you wanted to make sure that, um, you know, customers, for example, uh, input is there, but also the ROI, also the way that you essentially build it to build the ecosystem around it, and, and these kind of things. Can you tell us a little bit about the way you have thought about the product roadmap, the way you see it, the way you would like to manage it? I mean, sure. So um, Lease Accelerator offers a, a, a business SaaS platform that helps companies automate their whole life cycle for leases. So people, you know, companies lease a lot of real estate, and those could be office spaces, warehouses, shipping depots, parking garages, you name it. They, there's very different kinds of real estate out there. And they also lease a lot of equipment. And of course, there's many different kinds of equipment out there too. Trucks, trailers, IT equipment, office equipment, machine tools, right? And all those leases need to be managed as well as those leased assets. So our software really helps companies go from procuring the equipment and the leases themselves, right? Finding the real estate, tracking, putting the, tr the lease transactions together, tracking the actual documents, and then tracking the indiv individual spaces in the real estate and the indiv individual assets on the equipment leases throughout the life cycle, including the accounting. And, you know, what's, what's most important to our clients is that and to us in terms of that roadmap is, is everything we get, we're, we're going to do, does it have a clear business case, right? We sell to the office of the CFO, we sell to financial people, we sell to controllers, right? And these people are very savvy about value. And so it's got to be quantitative, right? So it's, it's, you know, everything that we do has to have kind of a 10x multiple. You give me a dollar, I'm going to give you 10 back. And here's how. And it's got to be couched in terms of savings, ROI, new free cash flow, and within a reasonable payback period, right? And so this is the kind of language of our sale process, but it's also the language of our roadmap because <clears throat> we really want customers to validate that this is going to be useful, valuable, helpful to them in achieving their own business objectives before we build anything, right? And so I spend a lot of time with our top clients, you know, the next four or five months, I'll visit our top 30 customers around the world and sit down with the corporate controllers and say, you know, tell me how things are going. How are we serving you? How can we do better in serving you? But tell me generally what's happening in your business. You know, what are some of the kind of key projects that you're focused on and what do you worry about? You know, I was, I do this every year and a couple times a year 
And in the last two years, the thing that's top of mind for everybody that I talk to, CFOs, controllers, treasurers, it's all about ESG, right? And we picked this up, I picked this up by having these conversations with people a couple of years ago and then doing the research to see, well, how can we help with the situation, right? And that really informed our product roadmap. So, you know, we're the only players in the market that really automate the whole lease life cycle, both for real estate and equipment. But because we have this capability of putting assets into our system, we realized that we were in a very unique position to deliver value that our customers were thinking about all the time. And in, in doing so, further differentiate our product and take market share. And, and, and that's what we're doing with our new kind of emissions offerings. And, and when you, from the time that, you know, you started with these, as you mentioned, there are a variety of leases that you cover today. But when you started, probably it was, a, you know, not the scope was as is. It was a smaller scope. And then the product roadmap started to build the product and make it bigger. How did you see... Um, you know, when, when you started, how did you grow the product roadmap and how do you see it's growing, moving forward in your business? Is it about covering more variety of leases? Is it about, you know, going to another aspect related to lease? How do you see the growth moving forward? How do you expand the product moving forward? And how did you decide on those expansions that you have had so far since the starting? That's a great question. So we really started focusing on the, the management, the lease management, right? We always serve corporate controllers and treasurers. And, um, and within that management, there's both real estate lease administration, which serves the VP of real estate, sometimes the VP of real estate and facilities. And then there's the equipment component, which is kind of shared throughout procurement and operations, right? So many different stakeholders, one objective of managing the leases from start to finish and managing the leased assets uh, underneath each of those leases. So that was our original focus. We added lease accounting um, beginning in 2011. And that application, um, you know, we, we developed under the old standards. And then in 2019, the FASB uh, under the, the the direction of the SEC and the U.S. Congress basically changed the the lease accounting standards to take all leases longer than 12 months and put them on your balance sheet. So capitalizing those leases meant that there was a, a brand new lease accounting standard that companies had to follow, which was far more complicated than the last standard. So we we just saw that coming and built to that. And then along the way, you know, listening to our, our clients that they wanted a better way to organize the front end of the process, you know, we, um, we developed two other platforms, both of which we acquired and integrated with our core application. So one application was to help companies bid out the equipment leasing around the world, wherever they were doing leases. So they might use upstream like a, an Ariba or a Coupa 
as part of their sourcing and procurement process. And what we did is we basically plugged into that. And when they knew, because they had done a cash bid, what equipment they wanted to to lease, they would then flip that information over to us and we would bid it out to leasing companies um, wherever they were wanted to do that leasing around the world. And basically through that competition, bid down the price and create savings and free cash flow for our customers. Um, and that helped controllers get control of the, the lease data at the very front end of the process with a lease versus buy analysis. And that way they could track, well, if it said lease, let's make sure we're getting every lease that comes out of that process. And from a procurement standpoint, they want to drive as much savings as they can by managing spend. And leasing is, equipment leasing is a great area of unmanaged spend traditionally in the procurement world. So we kind of solve that problem. On the real estate side, they want one integrated system that does real estate and equipment that can manage their life cycle of their real estate. So um, we bought a company about four or five years ago, integrated with our core application. We've been developing it very aggressively since. And now we're, we're displacing many of the older, more traditional applications out there with kind of a classic... Uh, you know, disruption strategy, right, of doing really just what customers want and need without kind of the the bloatware heaviness um, that requires a ton of consultants to kind of implement, right? And that's the difference. One of the big differences between kind of rigid traditional technology that was kind of pulled into the SaaS world versus SaaS native technology, which is really very much about ease of configuration, ease of use, and self-service, and really having kind of the in-app, just-in-time training um, that people have just kind of come to expect from kind of modern business SaaS. So that's allowed us to not just create differentiation, but go into the market and really displace more traditional technologies. So, um, and you know, each one of those decisions that we've made about where and how to invest They've all come from our customers saying, hey, this is what I need. Hey, this is what I'm thinking about. This is where I'm experiencing pain, right? So what we see today is, you know, a lot of companies that maybe have a lease accounting point solution or they have like a traditional real estate point solution and they want everything on one platform. So they'll consolidate vendors, they'll consolidate applications. And that's where we see a lot of growth is that kind of, um, you know, in the in terms of replacing, you know, more traditional, you know, vendors with kind of older technology. Uh, so two different aspects. One is, of course, sometimes you hear from one customer or maybe a couple of customers. That's still customers are talking with you. But sometimes you hear it from more number of customers. I don't know, depending on the business, it varies, but let's say 5, 10, 15 customers. In that case, market is talking with you because that's more than just one or a few customers. And of course, market always speak louder. And, you know, some people tend to really listen to market. Some people may not have the opportunity or create the opportunity for themselves to really, you know, hearing it. And of course, the companies that we see are more successful, in my experience, are the companies that really listen to market and also listen to customers, but especially listening to market. Um, 
Now, do you see any kind of sometimes I hear from um, other CEOs that they say, well, it's can, kind of tricky sometimes listening to customer because if it's one customer, we don't know. If it's two customers, we don't really, we need to be very careful because it's not really, it's sometimes it's not always positive to be very customer-centric or have a customer-centric roadmap. I'd rather to be market-oriented. And that's really where that line is, that this is market, this is just a particular need for a particular customer. And of course, that's the art of product management to realize the difference between these two and really do something that is really for you know, the market and the customers. On top of that, the second part that is related to this is any software is serving different users and different roles. As you mentioned, in your case, controllers are one of the users' types and roles that you serve. But at the same time, you are also working with other variety of roles. So in that case, whatever you add, you need to look at it from different people's perspective that they work with the software and not just do it in one aspect, but what is the impact of that on all of these roles collectively? So what's your take on, for example, this is what I hear from customer and I know this is really what market tells me versus this is what I hear from customer and this is very kind of, is there any particular way when you communicate with customers you really have that sense that this is what really roadmap needs to change because this is what market asks us versus this is a very special case and the roles and everything. How do you look at those dimensions? Yeah, so we, we practice, you know, a product management discipline where, you know, we're listening to customers all the time in structured ways, right? And then we take that data and we'll do a market analysis, market assessment, so that we get that perspective as well. And so, you know, customers are great at telling you where their pain is and the challenges that they're having, but they, they're not always great at specifying, and here's exactly how we need to solve it, right? So, so you need to listen to customers, but you also really need to serve them up with, you know, kind of a straw man that they can react to because it's very hard for them to kind of invent it themselves, right? Um, and this is kind of like like the Steve Jobs perspective of, you know, customers don't know what they really want until you show it to them. And what I would just say is that's sometimes true, and this is the tricky part, you know, and the key is that you, you, you really need to do the data analytics to really find your way forward through those details. Now, we have spent a lot of time building um, partnerships, very deep partnerships. Um, because we've been in this market for a long time, like we grew up with a lot of our colleagues who are now partners in, like, say, the big four or Accenture, GenPAC, some of the large outsourcing companies, RGP. We have unique partnerships with them that we've built over many, many years, along with PwC and EY. And and the partners in those organizations and the experts in those organizations are also talking to our same target customers all the time. So, you know, how do you de-risk, um, you know, building the right thing? You, you start by listening to customers' pain. You collect data from customers. You do 
focus groups with specific feedback, wireframes workflow with customers to get the data. You do the market analysis. You size the markets. You figure out how many companies really will suffer from this to figure out you know, what the size of that market is, how much you can charge people, right? And you got to ask the questions. You got to do that hard work and ask the questions to come up with the business case for why something should be on your roadmap. It starts with the business case. And the business case has all these components, including running all this detail and you know market analysis with our customer, with our partners, for them to validate it. And our partners themselves are also our customers because they buy from us and to, to use as their managed services to their customers. So, um, so we define personas and archetypes and we really work around different business cases for each persona and archetype as we, we kind of run this process. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very uh, kind of give and take kind of interactions that you need with both customers and with partners. But I think partnership is the right way to think about growing a SaaS business over a long period of time. It's not about transactions, it's about partnerships. And we're an enterprise SaaS company, that's really our focus. There's the largest companies in the world and they have their own unique needs and complexity that you know maybe a mid-market or SMB company does not have. So you know, we, uh, we really like to stick to our, knit, our knitting in, in, you know, in focusing on that domain. We still have products uh, for SMB and mid-market, but those are really managed and handled by different product managers, right? Who really focus just on, you know, that those horizontal kind of market segments. Now, a lot of other companies, and this gets back to your point about specialization, you know, they may be verticalized, right? So they're they're doing what I'm describing, but they're also not doing it in a kind of a horizontal way, but they're really doing it in a verticalized way. And that's another really powerful way to create value. Yeah, that's a fantastic point you mentioned that it's all about partnership, not about transactions. So I would like to, you know, that that's a fantastic point. So at the end of the day, even the roadmap, even building product, building SaaS business, everything, if the mentality is this is a partnership and you're defining it around that partnership versus just looking at the transactions, that's the right way to do it. So I appreciate that point. I would like to also ask you as the last a question. If you could, please um, share with us one of the books that you liked and um, you thought that it has had positive impact in what you do. And um, myself and the audience would like to, you know, um, hear from you. What What is that book that you would recommend? Well, listen, I, I recommend any book uh, by Brene Brown. Mm. Um, I think... You know, um, I read three or four books by her. Um, Dare to Lead um, is is one of them, and pretty much everything that she really talks about is about the importance of authenticity and vulnerability, right? And whether it's it's with your team, people you work with, your colleagues and your team, or it's with your clients or it's with your partners, you know, all those relationships are built on trust. 
And, you know, the way you build trust is, you know, it's, it's listening empathetically. Um, but it's also just really sharing as openly as you can. That's the key to building trust, right? So, you know, it's kind of in any relationship. And so what I really appreciate about Brene Brown is, you know, she talks about what, what's happening on the inside, you know, when you're building new relationships or when you're trying to go deeper with existing relationships. And I, I think that advice, that guidance has been really expansive and helpful for me as a leader, right? Um, in terms of helping people you know, become the best that they can be in their work life, right? And personal life. I mean, all these traditional lines that we used to draw, they're all kind of gone, you know, like we don't go to offices that often anymore, right? And so, you know, we work a lot from home. And I remember during COVID, my board was really concerned about the great resignation. And um, you know, what was going to happen if, you know, if, if we lost like 20, 30% of our staff and, you know, that was happening frequently. And so I said, well, you know, I used to keep in touch with people because they would come into the office all the time and I'd be able to stop by their office or bump into them in the kitchen or, you know, on the elevator or something like that and just catch up with them, connect with them, see how they're doing. And I realized I was missing this, so I got on the phone with everybody in the business and interviewed everyone for 30 minutes. And I was really just trying to find out how they were doing. And, you know, it really requires kind of skilled listening to kind of put people at ease and uh, really connect with them, right? At the end of the day, that's what matters. It's more, you know, we always say health and family is number one. And that... COVID really put that, those values that you run your business on to the test, I think. Anyway, we, we, we lost no one um, in COVID because they left to go to another company. You know, um, you know we, we had people who really struggled with COVID and other illnesses that, you know, through that. But we never really lost anybody with the great resignation. And I think in part it's because of the values that we actually hold in making decisions and the practices that we put in place. And a lot of those things, they take, they take courage, you know? And uh, Brene Brown has helped me figure out how to bring some of these skills and insights, you know, into the heart of our business. So I recommend that to any CEO and really just anybody. I think her, her work okay. is tremendous. No, fantastic point. And, and you're absolutely right when you say trust matters because without trust, there is no truth. So you only tell the truth when you trust someone. <laughs> and if you don't really have the truth, then how can you make a good decision if your decision is not really, you know. So, so that's really what matters, right? So we need to establish that kind of trust relationship between everyone almost, right? So board you mentioned, investors, employees, partners, customers, at any level, you need that trust. If they trust you, it's making your life much, much easier. And not just easier, it makes it more pleasant. So definitely, I appreciate that. Uh, and I have seen really great CEOs are the ones that they gain 
the leaders who are doing great are the ones that actually can secure that kind of trust relationship with people around them. So fantastic point. Um, thank you very much, Michael, again, for being part of this discussion. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Um, and uh, definitely I will follow you moving forward. Likewise, Arman. Good luck to you too. And thanks for, uh, thanks for hosting this, including. Of really course. appreciate it. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve A, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.